You're listening to a Milky Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we operate, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And with respect to where our collaborators, guests and listeners are, we extend our acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past and present. Hello there, my name is Patrick Hayes and this is Producers in Conversation. This podcast series is all about conversations with producers to share experiences, triumphs and difficulties as we try to find the answer to the elusive question, what exactly is a producer anyway? I've been working within the arts industry with venues, festivals and independently producing for nearly 10 years now and I'm still not sure I have an easy answer. This episode, I am joined by Lyle Brooks, the founding artistic director of Lab Kelpie. Today, we're going to be talking around all things arts sector, but looking in on imposter syndrome, touring producing, and also, though there are setbacks that kind of fall apart in many different projects, how do we take advantage of those fall setbacks to create something new? Lyle, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners before we begin? I'm Lyle Brooks. I use he, him pronouns. I am, I I guess, more known for producing uh, under the Lab Kelpie umbrella. So about 10 years ago, my partner and I started Lab Kelpie Theatre Company, which has um, gone through a few different iterations and is now a a company focused on new Australian text-based works. Previous to that, though, I've sort of had over 20 years of experience working as a performing artist, as a theatre director, uh, as a teaching artist. So, yeah, most of my producing has been sort of in a, a very small independent institution, I guess, but uh, I do do other things as well that are sort of, you know, outside of that. But also I, I say in other independent producing, but I guess I always do rely on those skills that I've learned and the networks and and, and things that uh, have come from sort of building up a company of, of my own. I also, yeah, I'm very interested in bringing arts and education together, so in particular theatre and education, so sort of linking up students, whether they be drama students or whatever, uh, sort of linking their curriculum or just linking their interests with what's going on in the professional industry uh, and and making it sort of make sense because I know sometimes there's a big disconnect between what students learn and what they get faced with when they get out into the world or into the industry, so it's always nice to sort of uh, have each other make sense of, of what the other party's doing. And also just outside of education itself, but certainly in the youth sphere, I'm definitely interested in just sort of helping young people find their voice, I guess. Mm. It doesn't always have to be uh, product-oriented, but it's all about the process. And and by youth, I also mean, you know, people up to, say, 21, 22, I feel like there's also that gap after high school where young people are meant to have got things together and, and no longer need the, the support <laughs> I also like I I use the term young a lot in early career kind of interchangeable sometimes where I also like have to add a caveat going I mean young producer but that could just mean someone who's just starting as a producer or those kind of elements yeah and I mean like a lot of those kind of elements are within what this aim of this podcast is it's kind of a place where we can kind of share experiences especially as producers I feel like we don't often communicate with other producers very well, like other than business. So like, obviously Mm -hmm. we're talking a lot through like contracts and emails and probably cursing each other's names as um, delays and emails or all those kind of points. But there's not many spaces or chances for us to kind of go. Yeah. Like I've experienced that too. This is how I've kind of deal with this or, Hey, has anyone else struggled with this at the moment? 
those kind of systems, which I think is one of the kind of thought experiments behind this podcast. Yeah. We also like kind of go through on the ambig- the ambiguity of what a producer is. Uh, I think it's one of those things that I often joke about trying to explain to my family what I do, but also... Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I feel like I'm also sometimes having to explain to veteran arts workers what I do. It's kind of this very interchangeable role. So this is kind of why my first question, I guess, is how do you define a producer? I mean, that has to be the scariest question of all. (laughs) It is so ambiguous. It depends on, on so many things. It's so particular, isn't it? Yeah, trying to describe what a producer is to people who don't know is almost impossible you almost have to show them lots of different examples of of what your you know your end product is and hope they get a, an understanding of that it's kind of those one of those if you know you know things i guess a producer for me and it's tough too because i you know i consider myself a creative producer you know with some sort of artistic input into, into what i work on and, and jobs that i've taken where i haven't been a creative producer that's when i feel the real difference there and and to be honest, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't love being just the a, a, a straight up producer. I guess it is clues in the name. You you are creating something. You can't do it in a vacuum. You can't do it alone. You are a wrangler of people, of budgets, of uh, of schedules, of venues, of other stakeholders. You are always just working on on a very very narrow end result, which is to get this. In my case, you know, show in a theatre, over a season, or it might be a tour. But I guess you're like the funnel in a creative process. You you are helping guide all these disparate elements, and they can be, you know, wonderful and colourful and creative, or they can be dry and Excel spreadsheets, and you're sort of funneling everything to this one final point, which is an audience sitting there watching your show. Yeah, I guess that's that wasn't very short or concise, but it feels like that's the shortest version Look, of what I can get. I that like if it was short and like precise, we probably wouldn't have this podcast or be having this conversation. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where producing does like, and as you kind of alluded to, there's a multiple facets of different styles of producing in its own right. Like there are different jobs yeah. of producers versus also just different personal styles of producing and what they do. But the difference between like a venue producer versus a creative producer or even, we're not even getting into genres as well. Like there's different styles of genres mm. and like live performance to video producers, TV oh. and music producers have a whole different meaning to that word where they're a lot more like logistic, but like actual like technical focus of understanding how things go compared to live producers who don't normally have that same kind of technical knowledge. It's It's a really nuanced point, which I think... Yeah, I think a funnel or people often say like herding cats and kind of all those elements yeah. of just, yeah, we are the ones that I kind of... I just thought of that then. Yeah. <laughs> that was just coming to my head, this vision of, oh my God, that's what you are. You're just directing everything to this one point. The other thing that often everyone says to me whenever I ask what a producer is, they're just like, they're the people who make stuff happen, which just means we're overworked and tired a lot of yeah. the time. <laughs> I feel like even, I mean, because I, I work part-time, as education coordinator at Malthouse now, you don't have to bleep that out, it's fine. Because yeah. I think it's the same for any big organisation. Um, but even the, you know, the producers there, it doesn't, you know, from what I see, nothing's clarified that much more than the independent sector. They are still doing kind of everything, even though there are, you know, separate roles now taking on those little tasks that maybe a producer would be in the independent sector. Yeah, it's still I kind of negative. From my own personal reflection going into organisations, producing often doesn't, once again, it's kind of, a, you don't get told what you do do, all you get told when you move into an organisation is what you don't do. 
that's just from like when I would be like be an independent producer and then go into an organization and then I would have a marketing team or something and I would do stuff and they go, well, that's not your job. Cool. I, I didn't know that. So sorry. I'm used to doing everything by myself. Exactly. Yes. So I guess in that kind of ambiguous sense, and, and you've, already, you've already kind of mentioned that you don't prefer doing the more bland style of producing, but why did you become a producer? Was there something that like drew you? Did you have a call moment or did you just ha- find yourself as a producer? Well, I just tied into what we were just talking about. It, it, it just comes out of necessity. When you're starting, you know, your own independent company, uh, unless you're lucky enough to have a, you know, a big group of people uh, and all sort of know what you're doing and, and can start that ensemble vibe straight away. You know, there's only a couple of us just out of necessity. I think it's sort of tying back to the last question too of, of what is a producer, I think, and that funnel idea. I think people tend to bring the end result to a producer and it's up to us to explode that back out and sort of, you know, reverse engineer what will need to be done to get back to that point. And so I feel like, you know, when we first started Lab Kelpie, for example, we wanted to do a show and we knew what show we wanted to do and that was the end goal and we had the, you know, venue booked in. And so from necessity, we, we expand that back out and say, what are all the things that we have to do to get that show on in that space at that time? So that's really the why. It, it wasn't like a burning ambition to become a producer. I probably wasn't even that aware of, like we were talking about before, if you don't know, you don't know, of what a producer was. So that, that was it. It was just I had to do it. But also, you know, found I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I enjoy working with other people. Uh, you know, I don't, don't love producing by myself. I like other people to to bounce off and, and, and pick up the slack and me help them pick up the slack when need be. I guess that's why I've stayed in it because uh, I, I love the end result. Like like everyone else, I guess, yeah. It, it turns into, after a while, it becomes an enjoyable chore <laughs> in some ways, funneling everything to that, that one, one result. Uh, so that's why I stay in it. To begin with, it was just, you have to, don't you? I mean, I think there's a lot of producers that kind of emulate that stepping stone. I actually used to make a kind of joke that producers are, I studied to be a drama teacher in university. That was my actual background. And there's often that kind of joke about drama teachers are failed performers, which I do not like. I used to make them the next standpoint where, not necessarily fail, but it was like kind of that avenue for performers where a lot of performers start off artists making their own shows, doing all that stuff. They then learn producing skills from doing that. And then they start producing for friends because friends think that they do a good job at producing their shows. Then they go, oh, now I'm producing four or five of my friends. Now I'm a producer. Now I've got a company. Now I'm doing, like, it's like this kind of producers are actually that stepping stone away from artists sometimes. And that's where most producers come from is that kind of, oh, I just stumbled into it. I think Laura and I are one of the couple of producers that I met that because I I graduated from uni and started producing. That was my avenue, but that's because I did an internship and just kept going. But I don't, I rarely meet another producer that has had that kind of trajectory of just going into producing. It's always like, oh, well, someone had to do it. And then now here I am so many years later and I'm still doing it. And it's like, great, sure. And you have to, I think you have to enjoy it. Yeah, it's a real it's a real interesting point. And I guess like with like out of necessity and kind of finding yourself like you're going, I wanted to put on a show and do this and making lab Kelpie and all those elements. Did you have like a penny drop moment where you suddenly were like, Oh, I, I'm a producer? Oh god, no. I, I still suffer from imposter syndrome every single day. 
I think I think you might have suspected I've just been terrified of having this chat today, <laughs> of being you know labelled a producer and having words come out of my mouth that you know you think are going to be valuable for anyone. It's it's a horrible burden <laughs> to think that someone thinks I'm a producer because yeah, I, I don't feel like that. Even though if I look back at the past, you know, even ten years, of course, that's what I've been doing. Looking. <laughs> Looking at it, I would I would say you are a producer, just as a side like <laughs> point. But I do understand. I think producing is a really hard element to kind of have a yardstick for and kind of measure yourself up against because it is so fluid. And also, as I mentioned, like producers don't often talk to each other and like verify each other. When we're kind of talking around the stuff, I used to work at APAM and. I guess we used to like establish stuff like emerging versus establish over like the rule of thumb was first five years of your practice was you were emerging. And then after that, you were established, whatever that means. That kind of was yeah. the the government speak of how to define. But also even by that standard, that didn't always make sense because things change and you change practice and you do all those points. But also in the last two years, especially if in Victoria, no one's been making um, live performance really for the last two years with all the lockdown. So what does that mean for people who are going through this kind of experience? I guess, I mean, uh, maybe that whole imposter syndrome thing I'm feeling right now is, you know, maybe that's just this week because, uh, you know, now that you're talking, I'm thinking, and I should have said this in my introduction too, you know, I've actually, I've coordinated a couple of tours too. And I think that's sort of been my most, uh, my most successful kind of producing role that I've done and, and I guess and I'm thinking of you know sitting there watching the the work that you've coordinated a tour for perform you know open up in, in its remount and open for the first time and then going to visit it at, at a venue and then seeing it all wrap up and you know putting the set away in storage of those <laughs> those horrible dirty work things I guess in those moments I've thought you know what I did that if it wasn't for me, this wouldn't have happened. I think talking, uh, just speaking to what you were saying before too about the different pathways into producing, I mean, you're right, so many producers end up coming from that artistic background and going into that out of necessity. So maybe it's more difficult for people who have done that to feel like, uh, you know, to, to, to measure themselves as to what makes a good producer and, and when they're a good producer because it always feels like they're just doing it out of necessity, like I said. But I guess if I separate that, you know what that it reminds me of too is – is the school system. I know what you mean before about those who can do, those who can't teach, that whole horrible motto that should be binned. What I'm really kind of happy about at the moment is this idea in Victoria, anyway, in, in VCE, you have drama stream, but you have this theatre study stream, which is this more sort of holistic uh, idea of it's not just teaching acting, it's teaching putting on a show and, and you take on different roles, acting, directing, designing, you know, stage management, producing. And I think from those sorts of classes, you will get more kids going into the biz going, oh, that's what I... I love doing and just having worked in a couple of schools too as resident artist or, or doing things there are those kids and they're the smartest kids in the class <laughs> and, and they're the ones that just relish taking on board that uh, that organization role and yeah I, I love that yeah so so back to the I guess to, to re-answer the question of, of why did I become a producer or well, that moment I felt like a producer I think it, it was that it was tour coordinating and I guess now because I'm I'm sort of mentoring others into a coordination and running a couple of webinars and things through through Rav and helped Laura out too with some of her things. I guess when someone calls on you for advice or to you know to help out their mentees, I, I guess that feels pretty pretty bloody good. Like okay, I've got some skills, I've got some knowledge that I can impart. But yeah, just general 
outside of touring, like getting a production onto the stage for the first time, that still feels quite nebulous to me. And I'll get there in the end. But if someone asked me how I got there and, and to teach me how to do it, teach them how to do it, I, I, I would go back into my little shell like I did before when you asked and go, oh, I don't know, I'm an imposter, I'm a fraud. <laughs> don't no, listen to I me. It's one of those things that I think is just a constant navigation point. But like, I guess if we look at it as a standpoint, as you go through and you identify eventually as a producer, all those kind of elements. My next question that I like to kind of talk about, which once again, we've kind of mentioned is a bit fluid. What are the core skills you think producers need? All right. Well, now that I've actually in my head identified, okay, I feel more comfortable talking about producing tours <laughs> i've got a few more things to hang my hat on here so what does a producer need the skills would be people skills but i don't mean salesperson skills necessarily but that's also part of it i think producers need to be be approachable and genuine and have the ability to make connections and i want to say friendships but maybe let's say friendship looking relationships with people because you also need the you know the flip side of that you also know, need to know when to to stand back and, and 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 reject things and and be the bad cop so you've got i guess you have to be a walking set of of ambiguities and and um what's the word what is the word i'm after the contradictions uh, yeah i think <laughs> you know? It's, yeah, people people skills is the way to name it, but it's also this kind of like you've got to deal with so many different personalities and different elements and you've got enough wild cards as it is just putting on a production first off, but then suddenly all these different points. You almost have to be like empathetic and kind of start to really understand when someone's pulling away versus when they're not pulling away. Like I always detest personally the um the cards to the chest negotiating that the art sector is always kind oh, of hard. Especially now. I feel like in twenty twenty two I think there are a lot more people that we, you know, producers and presenters, um, and artists that we deal with that are sort of throwing that away, which is nice. We, we've there's I don't know for me there feels like there's a lot more collegiality in in the biz now but yeah so the, um, but you still know those people because I think that's I feel like now the people skills that I've you know exercised over the past uh, five ten years are sort of are paying off <laughs> um, you know people are, are are seeing I think you can spot a fake now you know I'm not going to drop any names there don't worry you don't have to hover your finger over the bleep button. <laughs> and this is all on top of all the other skills. Yes, you need to be able to balance a budget. You need to be able to, this is going back to what we are saying before too, you need to be able to listen to others when, you know, and you're doing it now, you're creating this space where we can be, uh, you know, lean on each other and ask each other questions. You need to, yeah, be able to ask the question, but also to to listen and, and, and pick up tips, like picking up tips on, I don't know, God, Excel spreadsheet, formulas you know yeah. <laughs> if someone says oh, you know I, I will show you mine if you show me yours or just i will show you mine have a look at it and and, and pick over it there's there's no competition really in the biz yeah i think that is something i whenever i've been in mentorship components like i've always really tried to hammer home is try to remove this idea of which i mean i think we both suffer with as well so it's easier said than done this imposter but like shame of i'm not a good enough producer to share my own ideas or things like that or even just kind of go I don't know how to ask these questions because it means that I haven't done the job well Mm -hmm. I think I used to suffer from quite a lot where I was like I can't ask for help or I can't ask these questions because I'm worried that they're stupid and then working in a festival environment I then switched that and I was like oh no people are being paid to answer my stupid questions I should just ask those stupid questions and (laughs) also I also know that as a festival person 
sometimes when you're in those organizations, it's nice to know when you're not communicating things clearly. If someone's like, yeah. oh, I don't understand how this works or what's going on. Oh, I thought I said that. And you go, oh, actually, I'm not explaining this very well to new producers or new artists and those no. kind of elements. And oh, I do need a template of budgets and contracts I think, and stuff like that. I think a stupid question is an absolute gift, whether you're receiving it or giving it. It's a real gift for the other person. And, and even I'm going to broaden that out and say, you know, a stupid question that hasn't even been asked. If, if I have a mentee who says, oh, I, I do this other thing, what do you think? And, and it's amazing. I, I would let them know <laughs> as if I'd asked a stupid question and they told me, you know, the obvious answer. I would say, this is incredible. <laughs> mm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and sort of helping each other grow and, 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 yeah, being comfortable enough to ask each other stupid questions. I guess maybe that's why, you know, my imposter syndrome doesn't cripple me. <laughs> Those moments that I've realised we're all feeling that same way. We, you know, when you say to me, you feel the same way, I think, Oh, wonderful. This this feels lovely. I feel like we're all openly asking each other stupid questions, whether they've been asked or not. Yeah. So and, and and yeah, going back to what skills you need, that is a skill. And there are some personality types that don't maybe have that so easily, but I think it's really valuable. That humility, I guess it is, isn't it? Empathy and humility. Yeah. yeah and I think it's a like as you mentioned, like I think more producers are getting into that spot. When I was a program manager for Midsummer, I really was doing applications for Australia Council and I was talking to artists and I think I really shocked them because I was like, I just need to tell me how much the show is. You can give me a bracket of like what you think it could cost, but I need you to put like, give me an estimate of like what it costs to pay your way. And if it's not that, we shouldn't be doing this project. These poor artists had no idea how to handle this kind of blunt, just like, just tell me. And then we go yes or no, and then we just move on. I mean, even just from what you said, you know, you sort of hit on a bunch of other skills that you need as a producer, you know, that ability to say no, that that, that advocacy role, that, that it's almost like a parental thing. Yeah. <laughs> you are fighting for the artists even when they don't want to or can't fight for themselves. You're stepping in there and, uh, and you sort of throw that imposter syndrome aside and say and think to yourself, I don't know this, but I'm going to pretend I do for their sake, yeah. for them to feel comfortable, better, get well paid. I mean, the irony is, Producers are often the last ones to be paid, and we're in there fighting for everyone else. But yeah, it's, it's, there's all these other skills that you need apart from what we've already said. And you know, hopefully, people who are listening to this whole series get a get an idea after all of all these different skills that people are mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I kind of like talking within this space of sharing and connecting. I guess the next question I want to ask is: out of all of these skills that we kind of have talked about and they've like pinpointed, is there one thing that you specifically struggle with as a producer, and like, how do you approach that and manage that uh i mean asking in the month's time it may change but i think underappreciation can be really can be quite soul destroying uh when it's when it's constant and i don't just mean from you know artists or other stakeholders you're working with it's uh, well i guess it's all you know it's 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 people not maybe recognizing the work you are doing especially on a on something that i want to say Fails. For example, a, a grant application you don't get or a work that's cancelled before it goes on or a tour that has been on its feet. Because again, you know, you're the, you're the one that's funneled everything to this one point. And if that point doesn't happen, it feels, I can feel like it looks like you did nothing. When the truth is you have done all the things you always do, something just happened before it got to that point. And look, it doesn't have to be that for people for, for you to feel underappreciated for sure. But yeah, that's sort of yeah, funnily enough, this this year, you know, this dichotomy of being a producer, isn't it, is, is, as I said, at the moment, in the last 12 months, I feel like 
it's a great time and it's very collegiate and we're getting a lot of respect. But on the flip side, this year there are more opportunities missed as well and I feel kind of less respected. I mean, this time I feel less – at the moment I feel kind of less respected by – the people above us, the people in power that maybe have the chance, the ability to not just throw money at us, but to, uh, you know, to give us opportunities and support the industry as a whole. I, I don't know whether you need to bleep all that later, but. <laughs> I don't think so. And I, I'll, I'll go on. I'll, I'll join this kind of conversation point. Yeah. But I think it's a real point. And I, I will just add for context for our listeners that we are recording this in July yeah. 2022. And I only just say that because the world changes week by week. and. You know, they. I don't want people going. Why aren't they talking about World War Three? Why has? Why isn't that part of this conversation? Because it hasn't happened yet. But basically, I think that's a real. It's a real defining point. And I think one of the things that I've always noted with producing, and I've talked to a lot of young producers about, is we're in a real awkward. Like it's an awkward job because if you're doing it well, people don't often realise the work that you've done because it's like a smooth sailing ship. And then, but when you do it bad, suddenly it's all your fault or not even that, but it feels like it's all your fault because you were the yeah. one who was meant to be corralling everything and then it's not doing that. And then, so if it's easy, it's great, but we're not very forward facing. Like we, uh, we share that with like technical staff and things like that. When a show runs really smoothly, technical wise, like I know people clap them at the end when artists gesture to it, but general public are just a bit like, Sure, I'm clapping for the back wall. I don't really understand, but I'm still going there. <laughs> but it is that kind of very difficult standpoint. And I had it a lot during lockdown as well, like working, I was working in festivals, working at Midsummer, and I don't know if there was a lot of people who understood that I had these weeks where like, I couldn't tick a box. Like I couldn't say I've locked in these artists, I've locked in this venue. All I could really say at the end of the week was, I have artists that are t not telling me outright no's and that was my successes. And that was a really hard place to exist in because I didn't have anything to show for the work that I was doing of emailing and people management and trying to like HR the artists, but I'm not going to throw shade at any specific person in, in particular, because I think there was like also a different level of difficulty within that kind of the upper organizations or people within organizations or all those kind of elements but sometimes there was a bit more of not fully understanding the complexities of where the producers exist at the moment and yeah. what it takes to put on an event um which i think is like it's also understandable like i i don't think you could run like an entire arts funding organization and then also understand what an everyday independent producer has to go through to make and put on a show because that's oh, too much information for one brain. But it was a really difficult thing to kind of navigate because um, we, we were kind of we're operating as the middle management in a really weird way, like mm -hmm. especially as producers within organisations like Lab Kelpie or things like that where you're getting funding from organisations but then you're managing your organisation and you're trying to do the best you can there, but then there's also this change of funds, which hopefully, you know, we get a new federal budget in October this year. There may be some changes to that within the change of government, I'm hoping. Yeah. Who knows? I'm not super excited <laughs> for it, but, <laughs> yeah. I feel like, yeah, you're right. It, it is It is 
it's a little churlish, isn't it, to say I feel disrespected by those above me because as producers, that's what we get as well sometimes, like you said, when things fail. Um, but I think it's all valid. Oh, I think, like, I don't think that's a thing not to feel yeah. or points. Cause I think it's just something that we all kind of share. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's sort of two things I want to say, and that is that I feel like for the most part, apart from, you know, maybe a few other big things that have happened in the past nine years, um, you know, those who are supporting the arts, it's their job to support the arts, do a really good job. They do the best job they can. And you're right, they're going to drop some plates. But, oh, God, what other job does that sound like? Yeah, a producer. So <laughs> I can't really get too, uh, yeah, tantrumy about that sort of stuff because I feel like, yeah, they're, they're in the right direction. It's just such a, it's a behemoth of an industry to, to have, you know, to, to have all those plates spinning. The other thing I wanted to say is remind me of um in that whole, you know, um, corralling funnel diagram whatever we do it's really hard to have strong markers i think that's speaking to what you were saying before about working through the pandemic um strong markers to success sometimes a marker might be there but it really is just opening up the next lot of tasks that you have to do sometimes the marker will you know there'll be a success you know we've we've cast someone in that role that's not really yours it's not seen as yours that's seen as maybe the director's so there's these things that you just have to you have to have a thick skin and say i'm going to take that as a success i can keep moving that's a box i can tick yeah but often the the only big market is maybe that opening night and then like you said they can bow for themselves gesture to the stage management but where do they point to for the producer (laughs) it's it's a it's a very interesting place that we exist in and those elements. And once again, for the listeners, me and Lyle aren't going to solve all of these problems or bring up any radical solutions in these conversations. I think it's just one of those things that I'm, Laura and I are hoping from these kind of podcasts to, if it, at least a couple of producers listen to it and go, oh, okay, yeah, I feel a little bit like that as well, then it's kind of jo- done its job and it's kind of connected yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we're in, we're in the space of talking about the current climate anyway, so maybe we should l- launch into kind of the post-pandemic, allegedly, even though it's still happening, conversation of the arts landscape. How are you tackling the current landscape of the arts world? Uh, uh, that sigh um, is enough of an answer, probably. <laughs> it probably is, yeah. That's that's the the concise version. Is just that groan. Oh, I don't know where to start with this because we're in the right in the middle of it still. We, as Lab Kelpie, we really just pressed pause on most things. Mm-hmm. We did a bit of pivoting in 2020. I want to say, even though I made that that noise just then, I also want to say that I feel like we've been given a bit of a, an opportunity, a bit of a blessing in disguise or something, and just you know building on what I said before about feeling like, you know, who do you have to whatever to get money around here? <laughs> I feel like that might be a bit of a blessing too, um, not getting the opportunities that we really thought we would and should, and that's not too arrogant to say. I don't care. Uh, you know, at the moment we're going to kind of dismantle the company a little bit, a lot actually, sort of raise it to the ground, but not in a, a tantrum and to walk away from, but to to rebuild it in a in a better, more diverse, more robust, more sustainable way. So I don't think we could have done that if we had been just doing business as usual for the past couple of years. So I've got to say, if COVID hadn't happened, I would still be burning myself out trying to do maybe three, four shows a year under the Love Copy banner and directing them and acting others and, and wonder why I didn't have any money. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, but that, that's for me personally and for Love Copy, that's where we are at the moment regarding these external forces they happened. We very quickly said, "Can't change it." Yeah. I know there was a lot of you know shouting into the wind for a lot of people, which I which I understand. But for us, we're just taking it as a 
as the, oh, no, I don't want to get all woo, but the universe tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, slow down, rethink. Look, I think that's a, that's a real great takeaway. Like there are, obviously there's been difficulties and I could record a whole other 52 episode podcast on the difficulties of Hello. COVID. Let's, we acknowledge it, we know it, we've all tackled it. But like, I think that was definitely one of the benefits for me within a lockdown environment is that I, I did kind of break myself, but that meant that I reached a point where I did have to kind of go, I need to reevaluate how I'm working, why I'm working and what I want to be doing. And I think I'm still in that process, but I think that was a very different way of working with it. Cause it just was a point of going, you need to slow down because you can't do things or I was trying to fix that, even though there was nothing I could do to fix that, um, which I think a lot of producers were trying to find and create solutions in all those elements. Like, you know, everyone pivoted to online, everyone did all this pivoting and pivot. Everyone pivoted until there was no more pivots to have at the table. Mm -hmm. I think it, regardless whether we liked it or not, it created an opportunity for reflection. And I hope there is some change that comes out of this. And I think there is. Like, I think there have been small incremental changes. I hope there's some more impactful changes. But I think even as we were talking, people seem to be a little bit more understanding, empathetic, kind of going through that in a lot of our conversations within like venues mm -hmm. and those elements. I think that is already a good step in the right direction, even if it is just because we're all very fragile at the moment. <laughs> um, but, yeah. I think, yeah, we can feel fragile, but I feel like there's also, oh, no, I keep thinking of the word like musculature to to where we're going. Mm. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm, I'm about to make it like a gym reference because, you know, people can't see me, but, I'm a, but uh, I, th I think very sort of visually and metaphorically sometimes. So hopefully someone who's listening will go, oh, I get that yes. reference. I feel like you're talking about breaking, okay, which makes me think of good and bad breaks. I think of, you know, when you go to the gym and you're, you're lifting weights, what you are literally doing if you're doing it well is you are breaking the muscle fibers yeah. so they build back, you know, better and stronger and bigger. Um, and I feel like that's the best way to, to have these, let's call them breaks <laughs> or, or to these things. But, you know, there are obviously other sorts of breaks which are injurious and, and long-lasting. So it's about, I guess, avoiding those or at least identifying what sort of break you're having, what sort of challenges your career or your body is having and maybe recognising, maybe it's being a bit of a Pollyanna, but recognising that this could be a break that helps me rebuild in a bigger, better, stronger, sexier way mm. than the you know the world sucks and that's telling me to go back to bed which is pretty easy to think and i think that every day <laughs> but no yeah, and I, I, think I hope that makes sense and helps someone to visualize it that way yeah i think there is like a lot of metaphors of different layers within like gym or like work or study or a stitch in time saves nine like sometimes taking those points do the hard work or do those moments means that you can move on and i think that reflection or looking at those things is something I, I know I pushed aside a lot because I would just be moving on to the next job and keep on working and keep on working. Yeah, I think that's real interesting. The next kind of question we had is around funding projects, as we've already kind of alluded to. So I was like, I was wondering, how do you fund your projects, whether like Lab Kelpie projects or other projects? Okay, so I'm definitely not an expert in this field. I'm more of a student, I guess, when it comes to, to funding. I'm, I'm it's very hard to, I guess, explain my position because I guess I'm really rediscovering or rethinking about how we as, as a company, as myself as an artist or, and as an independent producer, you know, go about paying for what we do. 
I feel I feel like the the regular you know the the, the hamster wheel that we all get on, and it can be it can, it can have you know very small success rate, but there's enough of it to keep us going like junkies. Is just that that government funding mm-hmm. um, of of whatever level we go for. But you talk about sort of stopping and reflecting before, and I think yes, we should be reflecting on our, ourselves and how strong we have become, and and how much our uh, you know our, our failures or our challenges have built us up to be these wonderful unique human being producers but i think we could also use the past two years and if we still are having a bit of a hiatus to look at other funding models around the world uh, i know you know for example america does funding models very differently than the uk i wish we had a uk system where the government is very generous with money <laughs> but i also understand the benefit of you know of, of looking more at partnerships and philanthropy i mean as i said we're sort of rebuilding the company right now instead of my, my main focus at the moment is instead of trying to find money to pay for the artists involved in this new venture, it's to pay money. It's to find money to pay a partnerships person or a general manager or that support network. You know, the, the the people that provide the infrastructure for the art to happen. So this new ensemble that we want to get together is going to have a secure place to play and yeah i feel like who knows this could fail and you know whenever you're listening to this <laughs> you could know future lyle failed at this but i uh, that's where i think we need to go and i guess that's sort of looking at what you know what the organizations are doing it, it is odd as an indie producer i guess the first time you you see a main stage company and see the entire office or entire floor of philanthropy uh the department yeah i think how much do you even cost to exist but there's a good reason they're there. You know, they they are worth their weight in gold, and they they know to to keep their jobs, they have to make at least their wages plus all these other stuff. You know, and these people are amazing. I can't imagine doing that job. That is certainly a part of the the biz that I I have no interest in doing myself. Um, but I have not enough hats in the world to doff to these you know partnerships people. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such its own beast. Like I worked with a lot of festivals in my time, and if you mm. any of the listeners, if you want to look at some of those points, it's worth looking at those. Flick flick to the back of the guide. There's normally a sponsors page where they list all the different sponsors at all the different levels, all those elements. Australia does sit in that little microcosm of we do government funding and sponsorship but we also don't really do sponsorship on like smaller show levels like i think in australia my experience has been more like that gets referred to as in kind while america is a lot more focused philanthropy corporate um corporates giving money towards things those kind of elements and less government support while the uk has a lot of government support in those but then you've also got the whole world of you know broadway and west end which is all privatized all the sponsors all those things it's money is a really complex do lab kelpie when you're touring do you often work as in buy-ins from venues or do you always always yeah cool yeah yeah buy-in just for anyone who's new to the producing world that's just when a venue or festival pay you the fee to perform and then they retain the box office income from that kind of arrangement. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering whether it was that or whether you actually book out venues and then take the risk or not. But I think that's very hard to do yeah. on touring. Some I props to all the, it is, yeah. the mainstream actors and performers that do that. Like comedians are just hire venues and sell out, but terrible. Oh yeah. And I know, I know, yeah, I know Laura's done that in the past too. She has a mix of both those models, depending on the size and, and the style of show. Uh, we, we haven't done that yet. We're just too busy. As soon as you do that, then it opens a whole other, you know, box of responsibility. Yeah. I'd rather spend all that time 
when I have the time in my schedule, in my timeline of the project to make all the, the marketing amazing. So the venue has that to use as opposed to, you know, at the point where they're going to ask you to help out with the marketing because it's a co-pro, it's a box of a split is exactly when you don't have the time. Yeah. You're remounting, you know, you're organizing things, you're booking things. You, you, uh, <laughs> there's just zero time in the day left to do that sort of stuff. The different to when you're putting on a premier season, of course, usually you've, you've you know, rented the venue and you're doing all your own marketing and, and social media and stuff. Yeah, on tour, it's it's very, very different. It's the most awful, awkward time to have to pick up that responsibility. Yeah, and I think at the moment is a difficult time to work within box office, even though all of us have to in many different ways. But it's, yeah. it was hard enough to predict it at the best of times, but at the moment it feels like all the usual algorithms or all the guesswork that we normally have is just out the window because... Yeah. We can't predict how the audience interacts. Like I know Comedy Festival had a big drop off in um, ticket sales. I'll be very interested to see how other festivals happen. Like I know Melbourne Fringe is coming up, but I'd be interested to see how all of those ticket sales are going. And also just the crux that we all face is I think we're all trying to train audience to buy earlier. And now that is completely mm-hmm. out the window. We're Again, you know, we're recording this in late July 2022. It's going to be so quaint for someone in six months' time listening to this because <laughs> who knows what's going to happen. You know, at the moment in time, we are looking at, we're being warned that over the next month there's going to be an enormous surge in COVID cases. But, you know, I was at the theatre the other night in a full house. Yeah. Very few masks. Everyone just happy to be out again. I literally oh, I just went like today and bought another $30 worth of N95 masks just in case. I've got some projects I'm doing next week that I need to be in person. So I'm doing no more in-person engagements until that happens. Like all these things where once again, it kind of frustrates me that all these decisions and measures have come out of the government's hand and are suddenly in our hands, like yeah. as individuals to manage. But yeah, it's just where we are at the moment. It's what we have to think about. Like I know, I normally hate listening to podcasts where they say, "Oh, we you know we recorded at this time," but I think as producers, we need to, <laughs> to be aware of all these things happening all the time. So even if you know you're listening to this in the future where this doesn't matter anymore, there is something that matters just as much yeah. that you need to keep your, your finger on, and it's all nebulous in, in the future, and and you can't control it. I still have flashbacks to trying to figure out how many people could get into a theater, just watching oh the my news God, and all those kind of elements, and. Not that this is a, like, once again, this isn't a COVID podcast and we'll probably move on to the next thing soon, but those are the struggles (laughs) that I think we all had to start learning. I was even, I was hanging out with a friend yesterday and I was like, for some reason now, I never was an infectious disease expert, but suddenly I'm trying to learn biking in cases and what that means and mandates and all these nuances that I was, all these skills I didn't really want to have, but now suddenly we need to have them and figure out how to put on a show. Yeah, and you're right. It's, it's not a COVID podcast, but it doesn't have to be um, COVID itself. You know, who knows what? It, it could be yeah. a recession. It could be World War Three. Like you said, it could be a new something or other that is you know passed on through touch as opposed to through air molecules. It could be none of those things, and it could be just some other you know economical or social or cultural thing that you have to consider. There's always something to consider. I was going to say, do you remember you know before 2020? The things we'd have to worry about would be, is there another festival on at the same time so our show won't sell as well? What nights of the week are the best? What time should a show start for our audience to want to come and see the show? Is it winter? Do they have drinks at the bar? (laughs) And that seems so quaint now we're dealing with COVID. But, you know, there's always going to be something after COVID whenever. Oh, gosh. I think one of the biggest arguments, not even arguments, one of the biggest disasters I had, not necessarily a disaster either, but there was a performer who got naked in the show 
and then it was like the impact on liquor licenses for venues because um, if they had drinks within a certain distance in certain states liquor licenses change rules and they have different meanings certain states have like rules where if there's liquor within a naked body you have to go under basically a a stripper venue license and a sex work license and all these kind of points which is just like i remember those conversations being the worst thing in my mind instead of are people gonna die from seeing my show <laughs> those kind of yeah. debates but let's not go down that point as i said we could talk about COVID for the rest <laughs> of time so in all of these kind of conversation points why do you think producers are important to the art sector Oh, look, I don't want to sound up myself, but uh, <laughs> I think we're, and we're not the most important part of this system, but we are we are part of this, you know, sometimes very fragile ecosystem. And without us, like, like any ecosystem, you take one part away, the rest is gonna, either going to fall apart or take a long time to work out how to fill that same role. And that's what it would be. If you suddenly all the producers of them all disappeared, people would find other ways, other systems to fill those same tasks that need to be done. So we are part of the structure of, you know, in, in my case, putting on a show or putting on a, a, a tour. And again, that's not saying we're more important than the performers or the director or the designers or the venues or the front of house or the tech crew or the stage management. We are just part of it. And I feel like, like you know, like we said before, who who does the who do the actors point to when it comes to thinking they're producer? I mean, they don't. We, we're not very visible, but that doesn't mean we're not, you know, really integral or not, not a pillar really of yeah i often talk about whenever i talk about producing i think it's like communicators people connectors like those kind of elements where i think we're meant to be this kind of um adapter between all these different facets of performing or live performance and we then as you as you said like the, the funnel the funnel is still probably a really great kind of metaphor in it. yeah I've, I've got it too i've got i've got the metaphor okay. With the Allen key in the IKEA there box. There you go, Allen key. <laughs> if you get home after IKEA and there's no Allen key in there, there is no hope of this whole thing holding together. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it may not be big, flashy, important, visible bits, but by God, you need us. There we go. Box. A producer is the Allen key in the IKEA box. I like that. I like that <laughs> as a point. Yeah, I think that's a great way of doing it. With with that in mind, we're going to move away from the macro conversation of the arts landscape down to the micro a little bit. And this might be a hard one for you, but when it comes to producing, was there a moment that you were most proud of your producing or your own skill? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go back to, I guess, tour coordination because that's where I feel like I've had the most, probably the most failures and the most successes. But I guess that's, that's why this, I guess my answer is it feels more important the first tour that I sort of had uh, uh, coordinated with, in partnership with someone didn't get Australia Council funding, so we pulled it straight away. I always regretted that. The next one we had didn't get funding, but we sort of tore it down and rebuilt a replica of it uh, that could work and took some cuts here and there. But I think another big project we had, which was all across Australia over a few months, it didn't get the funding, the, the federal funding we wanted, but... I sort of knew enough by then that I was able to use my networks and we got, we sort of pieced together a bunch of different funding. So some venues put in more, I sort of used my contacts um, at Circuit West in WA and went through state funding there before we stopped being able to. Our tour in Queensland was, you know, we had three venues there that worked and then I put in this last minute touring Victoria funding application, which which got over the line and, and all those sort of 
managed to fill the holes. We also did a lot of reorganization. So it wasn't, you know, in, in a certain standard of hotel. We, we sort of went down the, the Airbnb route as much as we could and just were very sort of prudent with where we flew people and how we handled our freight. And it was just a really well put together tour, a very logical tour. So I think, I think even before that finished, I think as soon as that started and we hit that first day of remount, I was, because I was in the show then too, I could sort of, I had to put all that stuff aside <laughs> and leave it with, you know, our tour manager and our stage manager. I just, I, I was, I was really proud of it. And, you know, and, and Adam, my partner sort of said to me, I, I, I cannot believe that you, you not only save this, but it's looking just so, so robust and, and, and ready to go. And I just thought I, that was lovely to hear. I didn't need to hear that to feel good, but that was really nice for someone else. Like we said, like we said, the whole cat, I guess, is we often aren't seen as producers, but to have someone just go, hey, you did this. Hmm. <laughs> I guess that, that's it. Yeah, those those moments you can sit back, whether someone tells you or not, and go, I I did this. I tightened all those Allen Key screws up, <laughs> and this cupboard is holding together, and people are admiring it. If, we, if I'm going to, no, I think I've, I've, I've exhausted that Alan Key metaphor now. Um, hey, I think it's, <laughs> I think it works well. Yeah, I can definitely, definitely empathise within that kind of stance, and it's a great yeah. thing to have those moments reflected for you a little bit. Seeing the product, I think it's that's that's the end of the funnel. It's the the, the narrow end when something pops out the other side, and you go, oh, I did that. Mm. It's just is the best feeling. It's, it's I've got to sound like a junkie, probably, but it's why we go back, isn't it? For the next hit of I did that. Oh, um, <laughs> Maybe this isn't healthy. Oh my god, this is like therapy. I mean, I could also go into a whole other podcast on arts adrenaline and some of the unhealthy practice that we all live in. Going from the proudest, the other thing that I also like to personally share is like mistakes that we've made and those kind of elements because i think that there's no real learning space for producers other than just doing where we kind of just have to you have to do the producing to learn about the producing to become better at the producing Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the the way that we go about it which means that we often make mistakes and learn from them and i personally share a lot of them in my own life but do you have any mistake oh god it's it's so hard to think to to give a a specific example without I don't know, making oh, no, oh god, oh yuck. Um, well, well, we can also wrap it into the closing question as well because actually, the other people I've interviewed, this kind of ends up being the closing question as well, where it's like talking about what piece of advice would you give yourself earlier in the career if you want to be a little bit less specific. We can manage that as well. Well, I, I mean, my answer would be more general, like I said before. You know, as the context of the success was the mistakes I've made along the way. The re- not the regrets, because that means uh, that regrets means closure. You sort of turn those regrets into into learnings, mm-hmm. as is the word. Oh, yeah, so I guess yeah, I don't have a, a biggest mistake because producing is, like you said, it's it's constantly doing, it's constantly trying, it's constantly making mistakes. So I don't. There's no one biggest mistake that they've ever made. It's all a chance to to learn. I think it's really important to to look back. Open that folder of your very first production that you produced and look at your grant application or something. And, oh, my God, it's like like finding your diary from year eight or something. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> but isn't it wonderful that you can find that embarrassing and think, oh, I don't, I don't know when it happened, but obviously I've learned a lot since then. And I would never write an application like that now. Uh, it's also a reason for you to keep doing stuff, to not worry too much about, oh, this application or this production or this particular job I have to do has to be the most perfect, robust thing ever. Just do it. Uh, you, I think you will have learnt more than you you know 
but yeah, recognize your mistakes, but don't worry about, I don't know. I think when you say, what's your biggest mistake, it feels like, I don't know why you would prioritize them or, you know, have one on the, give it the gold medal of mistakes. If, if I had one, if I'd made, you know, the mother of all blowouts somewhere, I, I would love to share it with you and I would do it with a, a laugh and a chardonnay. But yeah, I think it's just a series of mistakes and successes is, what's, is why I'm here. Just to make sure the listeners don't walk away without anything. I'm trying to think of some of the ones that I've done in the past. One of the biggest ones that always like make, wakes me up from like most straight like just like everyone else in the, involved has forgotten about it and they won't even know it's happened but like it's one of those things that i'll just go oh my god i can't believe you did that seven years ago when i was like still an administrator and supporting producers probably more than producers one of my tasks was to meet artists at airports and we had like quite a significant and i won't say their name but it was at brisbane powerhouse and it was like the cabaret festival i think and it was like a very big name coming from america and it was but it wasn't them it was their producer and I was meant to pick them up from the airport at 5am. And unfortunately for me, it was middle of the festival period. I was extremely tired and I must have woken up enough just to turn off my alarm. So I wake up in that way, like just as their plane was landing. So I, there was no way I could get there in time. I was messaging them trying to be like, hey, I'm so sorry. It was the weirdest thing where they made the biggest stink of me picking them up from the airport. It all... It all happened. Um, I think they ignored me for the rest of their time in in Australia, (laughs) but it was a really, that was one of my moments, which then I learned to set multiple, multiple alarms. And, you know, if I need to do that, my phone's on the other side of the room if I really need to make sure I'm out of bed and those kind of things. So learnings, it's always about learning. Tell that story. I feel that in there, like the pit of my bowels. Well, (laughs) I feel where you were. Like you said, how important was it in the end, in retrospect? Not really. Yeah. Which, like, once again, like, I've, I, I also, you know, and another conversation I could have for the end of time is like this weird stress anxiety that we do around arts organization or the arts. Yeah, it's an all-consuming job sometimes, especially in those moments, especially in festivals, like you're saying. I have never worked in a festival, but I have, you know, vicariously seen (laughs) the festival workers and festival producers. So, yeah, of course, everything is, all the big things are enormous and the small things are inconsequential. Yeah, it's just the way it is. Yeah, and I think you do, I think people do get better as you go along in the career of identifying those things. I think when you're starting off, everything feels enormous and, like, even the small mistakes feel colossal but even when i look back now on that story as much as it's like dread in my heart of me going through it if i was a program manager and i had an associate producer messaging me going oh my god i didn't pick up an artist but they took an uber to the accommodation me as a program manager would have been like cool but did they get to the accommodation yeah okay well they're fine it's fine move on we'll deal with that at a different point it's just it's so interesting i guess that once again as you said like go back and look at some of the things and you, mm-hmm. you start to realise how different you are as a person or a producer down the line. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's just what it is. And we move on. And that's life. <laughs> yeah. I think as, yeah, as much as, uh, you know, independent producers especially have to have all these skills of an organisation, you know, which an organisation would have individual people for, I think you need to have those voices too. You know, you need to have your supervisor's voice in your head. When you make a huge mistake, they go, hey, it's fine. Did, was the result fine? Then get over it. Move on. Yeah. So I think we might just start to wrap up, keeping in time number time and everything. Everyone who's listening, I'll be getting socials and links from Lyle to include in the little 
show notes that will kind of link to anything we want to pitch if you want to follow lab kelpie or what they're doing or any of those kind of spaces um i know a lot of people who've done like internships and stuff within lab kelpie so if there's any of those opportunities in this new model of lab kelpie i think jump on that thank you so much Lyle, for your time it's been a really interesting conversation thank you you have you've taken my my imposter syndrome and, and soothed it <laughs> I hope I've made sense and helped and made some good metaphors along the way. I think it's been a great time. And with that, I'll say thank you listeners for listening and I'll catch you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Milky is your go-to for getting your show to the stage. We run industry-leading courses and workshops for independent artists and producers covering everything you want to know about producing a show. Want to find out more? Head to our website, milky.com.au. That's M-I-L-K-E dot com dot au